We are in a series, Rise Up and Build. How do you be a wall builder? How do you enter into the ruin of people's lives? And maybe, maybe it's your own life. How do you do that and how do you help? You know, up in my office, I have a lot of commentaries that were not originally mine. And I'm going to tell you how I got those commentaries. And, and I can't even remember, to tell you the truth, the name of the man who gave them to me. But it was in Atlanta, Georgia, where I was pastoring. And after I preached one Sunday, I had this gentleman come up to me. He'd been visiting for a little bit. And he said to me, and I won't forget this, he said, Tim, I really believe that God has his hand on your life. I want to give you something, and it's out in my car. I said, all right. We get out there, and there's three boxes full of commentaries. Now listen, if you know pastors, then you know they don't give their commentaries up easily. Neither, do, neither does a mechanic give away his tools. And I said to him, I said, why are you giving me these commentaries? Many of them I still use. They're fantastic. He said, well, I don't need them anymore. I said, what happened? He said, I was a pastor for years, and I started drinking. And the bottle got hold of me. I lost my marriage, and I lost my ministry. And I don't ever see going back. And I want to give these to you. Friends, broken walls and ruined lives are all around us. You just have to open your eyes. And what are you doing about it? You really don't think that you're absolved of any responsibility, do you? Nehemiah asked this group that had come from Judah up to where he was in Persia. He asked them, how, how are the Jews doing and how is Jerusalem doing? And they answered him with a report that shocked him. He asked, he listened, and when he heard the truth that they were living in great trouble and shame, he grieved. It broke his heart. And then he acted on it. He acted on it by going to his knees. See, he didn't do anything until God made it clear what he was to do. Listen, if you respond, if you see broken walls around you, if you see a ruined life around you, and you respond with your own plans, and you do what you want to do without receiving direction from God, then likely, at best, you're going to be ineffective. At worst, your own walls are going to crumble. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him, should rebuild walls in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. When you want to see help, go to somebody else. And you want to be part of that. Then the first place we move is to our knees. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and you, you, whatever comes to your mind, whatever face comes to your mind, you hold it in there for the rest of this sermon, okay? It's how you interact. By the way, there's a lot of people here. Do you know that Mother's Day is the third most attended Sunday at church? 
And I really don't even know why I'm telling you that. But listen, here's, I want you to hold this face. And moms, you know, you're pretty influential. Maybe you're going to hold the face of one of your kids in your minds. I don't know. But here's my question. And here, you interact. Do you know somebody, and by the way, it might be your own face that comes to mind. Do you know somebody whose life is in ruin? Whose walls are down? And there's rubble. They have made a mess of their lives. Whose face came to your mind? Hold it there while I continue this sermon. You know, there's some people who get that face in their mind and they say, well, I've got to do something about this. And they shoot first and then they aim later. You know, you know people that do that, right? If a person needs money, you feel bad. So you pull out your wallet. And you start giving out some money. But listen, is that really wise? Do you really know if God's not brought that person to this place in order to get their heart to a place of brokenness? That's what he did in Haggai chapter 1. Right? He says in Haggai chapter 1, they got holes in their pockets. They put money in their purses and it drops right out the bottom. God's bringing them to financial ruin so that they will turn back to him. But if you feel bad for their ruin and you do something without aiming first, you just shoot and you give money, then you might be even interfering with what God's doing. Years ago, a friend of mine decided to resign from his job. He'd always wanted to be in ministry. The pull of ministry was on his heart. He ended up moving. He and his family states away with the plan of entering ministry. But there were major patterns in his life that shouted disaster. Yet he always wanted to be in a ministry. This was his dream. So he moved And five years of disappointment, listen, five years of losing jobs, five years of being unable to get into ministry, five years of his children walking away from God later. He's a miserable man. And here's the worst part. People in our church were saying, go. This is great. God's hand is upon you. Disaster was looming. Verse 4 is where we begin to see. How do we enter into the life of someone who is in ruin wisely? I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And when you, you just read that and all of a sudden you've got to discipline your mind, friends, to go back into the ancient days of which Nehemiah lived. What was that like? Well, listen, meals were an hour to two hours long. In the Ackley family, in the Ackley family, we might make 15 to 20 minutes. If we're having an extraordinary discussion, we top out at 21, but not in the ancient days. In the ancient days, they lingered because it's a major, major opportunity for fellowship. So if you're going to fast and you're going to give up your meal, then you've got one to two hours of coming before the Lord. Nehemiah is coming before the Lord, praying before the Lord, saying, God, I see, I see the ruin. What do you want me to do? 
And this didn't last for a day. This didn't last for a week. And it didn't last for a month. Listen, it lasted for four months. You're going to see it next week. Four months of continual fasting and praying. God, what do you want me to do? How do I respond to what I've heard? I'm obligated. I understand I've got to do something, but I've got to aim first and shoot later. You know what, I, you know what Nehemiah was struggling with? Same thing, friends, you and I do. Listen, he's a man. He's human just like we are. He's a servant of God just like you and I are. He gets to those crossroads like we do, and we don't know which way to turn. There's a fog in our minds. I love foggy mornings. You know why I love foggy mornings? First of all, they're kind of peaceful, but then it's kind of awesome to watch the sun come up and begin burning it away. Well, Nehemiah's got a fog in his mind. Lord, I see the situation, but I don't know yet what you want me to do about it. So I'm going to give you four months. He didn't say that. He spent four months in prayer, and all the while prayer is doing what we rarely understand that it's doing. It's burning away the fog of confusion and bringing him into clarity of focus. But how does it work? And that's the subject of this message. The first thing we're going to see is this. Nehemiah His prayer begins with elevation. His prayer begins with elevation. Some of the best air that I have ever breathed in my life was on top of a mountain in the Adirondacks. It was so clear, it felt like this air, I couldn't get enough of it. Well, it was kind of the altitude, but even what I was getting was incredibly sweet. Air is clear up on high. But here's what we tend to do in prayer. Now listen, you see if you do this, practice a discipline of listening to a sermon, we tend to reduce God down. We tend to bring him down when we pray. When we pray, we're careless about it. Listen, prayer's not ever to be flippant. It cannot be reckless. You're not coming, friends, to your best bud in the universe. Yes, Jesus says he's a friend of sinners, but God is holy. He is omnipotent. He is the creator and the sustainer of every single breath that we take. You're coming to that God. He's got to be elevated. And repeatedly, the word of God warns us. Now, I hope you take this warning because we might have to do a bit of a corrective in our disciplines of prayer. This is what scripture says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Did you do that this morning? Listen, most of you have to park at least a half a block away. Some of you are two or three. Every step you take towards this church, are you shouting the praises of God? Are you preparing your heart to worship? Are you fitting your feet and your hands to serve? Are your tongues getting ready to loose praise to God and thankfulness to him so that you enter these doors with praise and thanksgiving in your heart. Listen, guard your steps, the Bible says, when you go to the house of God. Be not rash with your mouth. Listen, don't sing these songs. Don't sing these songs if your heart is not in them. If they're not expressions of faith and adoration, the best thing we can do is stop singing and begin praying. 
Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? Here's elevation. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Prayer always ascends over and over in scripture. God is on high. When we speak to him, our words of prayer go up. In fact, you go to Revelation you could go to chapter 5, and then you could follow it up in chapter 8, and you've got a beautiful imagery, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. When we pray, you are filling golden bowls with prayer that burns like incense. And Revelation 8 says that the smoke that comes off of those prayer prayers rise to the nostrils of God. Again, prayer rises to God. You've got to elevate Him in God. You can't bring Him down. And when we reduce God down to our best chum in the galaxy, we're actually breaking the first four commandments. Notice how Elijah, I keep saying Elijah, he's such a man of faith, just like Elijah. Notice how Nehemiah begins. And I said, oh Lord, God of heaven, can I translate that a little bit for you? Because Lord is Yahweh and God is Elohim. So he's praying Oh, Yahweh, Elohim of heaven. And let me translate just a little bit more what those names for God really mean, because Yahweh is his covenantal name. Do you realize that God only gave his name Yahweh to Israel, his chosen people? Christian brother and sister, you're grafted in. You could call God Yahweh as well. It's only a name for his people. It's a name of faithfulness. It's a name that says, I created this covenant with you. I will honor this covenant. It's a promise that I will never drop. I am faithful. I am Yahweh to you. By the way, have you ever gotten, met somebody that's really, really important? Maybe a CEO of a company. Maybe it's a famous actor or actress and they said to you you know what here's my cell phone you can call me anytime you want you have direct access to me that's Yahweh Yahweh is God's personal name that he's given to you Christian brother and sister and he says you've got direct access to me I'm your God and you're my people but I'm not just Yahweh Nehemiah says you're Elohim you know what Elohim means it's the name for God that means he's the creator he's the sovereign omnipotent sustainer of the universe here's the faithful powerful God and he's being elevated he's being risen up to his place in Nehemiah's prayer because that's what burns the fog of confusion out of your mind. Bring God to his rightful place. You know, really, it's pretty incredible as he keeps going. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. God has power to surpass every king, every president, every CEO or enemy. Here's what Proverbs says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Have you ever been in a creek and you've got the water rushing by you and you put your hands in there and you can spray the water this way or you can spray the water that way? This is what God does. Listen, you didn't really think that our president is in the office because you voted or didn't vote. There's no man that has that power. Your CEO is not the head of your company just because it's raw talent. 
It's God that holds Elohim power. It's God that surpasses every other power. It's God, Elohim, that directs the king where he wants him to go. You've got to give elevation to God when you pray. And when you do, you're going to pray like Nehemiah. This is how a wall builder prays. But it really wouldn't be very comforting, would it? To know that God has all power without knowing that God is all good. I mean, who wants a Hitler God? A God that almost, like Hitler, conquered the globe. That'd be kind of scary. Listen, I'm telling you right now, every, every person I've ever met whose walls are down and their lives in ruin, listen, they have separated God's power from God's goodness. I've never met an exception yet. I've never even met a believer in Christ who doubts God's sovereign power. Not even one. I'm pretty sure not one of you doubts that God is really the God of the universe. But I've met Christian after Christian that while, de- while he doesn't or she doesn't doubt the power of God, continually doubts the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God to that person. And when you separate that, then you've got a God you cannot trust and it moves you to an idol that you can replace him with. God's covenantal relationship is built on the promise that he will never stop loving you. Did you hear that? You shall be my people and I will be your God. That's covenant. That's steadfast love and he can never stop. But Nehemiah goes on in his prayer. First he elevates God, but then Nehemiah's prayer moves to something that I think most of us rarely do. And that is invitation. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants. You know, I have a really, really bad habit that I'm I'm really trying to break. I'm trying to break it mainly because my kids mock me so much for it. Here's what I do, and and I'm please let there be company in here to share my misery. So I'm going to even ask you men especially to respond if this is you as well. When I get on my laptop at home, I get tunnel vision. But I've got four kids who seem to be needier than most kids. And they want my attention. And so they'll say, Dad, listen, I want to tell you what happened today. And I'm, but I'm working. I'm, I'm responding to email. But I, don't, I know how disastrous it is for a... F- listen, I heard that stinking song, Cat in the Cradle. I know what it can happen. <laughs> That's the most convicting song I've ever heard in my life. I, I turn it off. So I don't want to be a cat in a cradle, so I'm listening to them. And here's what I've learned to do. This is terrible. I'm admitting my sin. I can actually turn my head to them while my eyes stay on the laptop. <laughs> but they don't really think up. Even Andrew, my six-year-old, starts doing this. He says, Dad, what did I just say? <laughs> Where did he learn this? How can a six-year-old be that smart? Listen, when we pray and we're elevating God, the very next thing you see in Nehemiah is, God, I'm inviting your full attention. I'm inviting it to fall on me. I ask, Lord, open your eyes to me. Open your ears to see the servant that I am before you. Listen, friends, you've got to grab this every single time you pray. 
Invite God's full attention. He wants you to. The wall builder's compassionate heart wants that. It asks for that. It's satisfied with nothing less. Anything less, friends, is like going out on a date and your spouse or the man in your life is watching the hockey game on television. That's what it feels like. I want God's full attention on my life. I want God to see me and to hear me. And Nehemiah is saying, God, I feel so strongly for Jerusalem's situation. Please give me your undivided attention. Listen, when you've got somebody, remember that person that came to your mind whose life is in ruin? Listen, when you begin praying for that person, your heart should beat so deeply that you're saying, God, I love this person so much. I want your full attention on me. I'm going to bring them to your throne and I'm going to ask for your mercy. There just is no flying under the radar of God's holy gaze when he responds to our invite. Listen, when you elevate God and you invite him his full attention, he's going to give it. And when he swings his holy gaze upon your soul, you're going to see things in your own heart that you never even knew lived there. And that's where we see Nehemiah go. Nehemiah's prayer then responds with confession. It responds with confession. Isn't it so easy, friends? I mean, aren't all of us experienced in this? And that when you see somebody's messy life and then you do what our squirrely heart does, you compare it to your own life and you come out and you feel a little superior. Haven't you ever done that? You kind of pray like that Pharisee in Luke. God, I thank you that I'm not like that person who's made a mess of his life. Listen, when you elevate God and you invite him, his full attention, he begins to shine the spotlight of his holy gaze on your heart. You can't think these thoughts for very long. When you see the incredible character of God, when you've been elevating him and you've invited him to look on you, you're reduced, friends. You're not elevated. We are reduced to the utter reality that at the foot of the cross, the ground is absolutely level. Listen, nobody was so good that they only needed a little bit of God's mercy to make it to eternal life. That's not been anybody. There is an insurmountable gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. Every bit of that bridge is built on God's mercy. Even the good things that we do are sinful and filthy in his eyes. And you begin seeing this, you begin elevating God, and all of a sudden, we begin to be smaller in our own eyes, the definition of humility. We don't, and we realize we don't need just a little bit of God's forgiveness. We're in radical need of it. We're radically contaminated by sin. So I can't really look on that person's life and think, wow, I'm so glad I'm better than them. It's level. Well, Tim, I don't have a problem with an addiction. Do you want God to put his light on your heart and then project it up on the screen? Everything you thought and did this last week and all of us to watch. None of us want our hearts laid bare in front of everybody else. Amen. The ground's level. 
at the foot of the cross. And Nehemiah invites God's full attention and then it begins to reveal his sin. Look at verse 6, the second part, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. He includes Israel and he includes himself. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. you know, I'll never forget the time in college. We lived in an apartment complex, me and two guys and uh, Wood, Woodhaven Apartments, and we weren't really known for being very neat and tidy. Guys, some of you know what I'm talking about. I'll not forget the night that I got up. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. I was so thirsty. I walked out into the kitchen. I flipped the light on, and the very first thing I saw looked like an undulating, moving black carpet. It was a mass of roaches. Now, some of you are judging me right now, <laughs> and it hurts. You know, the first thing that happened, listen, it wasn't two seconds before every single roach was gone. Found a place to scurry home to. Do you know what happens when God shines his holy gaze? You've invited him, and now he's going to shine it, not on that messy life. No, first he's going to bring his holy gaze to your heart. And you're going to begin seeing what you've never seen before and loved the ignorance of. Because when it lives in darkness, you don't have to deal with it. And all of a sudden, he begins to show you what's really in there that he sees all the time. The heart of Nehemiah responds in confession of his own sins. Friends, when's the last time that you've confessed somebody else's sin? Pastor Tim, I don't really believe in collective guilt. I just deal with my own. Coram Deo, before the face of God, that's just me. That's all I got to worry about, just me and God. Really, that's not Nehemiah's perspective, and that's not the Bible's. He's confessing not only his own sins, he's confessing the sins of his people. When's the last time you confessed the sins of that messy person whose life is in ruin? When's the last time you confessed the sins of your school or your church or your community? When's the last time you brought people to God's throne of mercy and confessed their sins for them? Woe is me! For I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, Isaiah says. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah is confessing his own sin. And then he's confessing the sins of God's people. How did that happen? He saw Jesus on the throne. That's who's on there in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees Jesus. He hears holy, holy, holy. He's elevating God. And whether he invited God or not, he saw him. And all of a sudden it revealed what's in his own life and in the lives of his people. Friends, confession, well, let me make it really, really simple. Ready? Picture this, a double layer cake with the word confession frosted on top. Okay, you got that in your mind? Let me tell you the layers. You bite into that cake, your top layer means literally to agree or acknowledge. That's the top layer of the cake of confession. There's two of them. I'll give you the second one in a minute. But the first one means to acknowledge or agree with what God is saying. Not agree with what people are telling you that you're forever short of their ideals of perfection. Don't agree with that. Agree with what the Holy God, who is your covenantal God, who has steadfast love for you, agree with what He's saying. 
Now, growing up, when I was a kid, we had a dog named Fluffy. I know. I know. Don't even do it. Don't go there. And Fluffy was pretty influential why I, anointed by God, did not want another dog in my own family. I do stress anointed by God. But every king has a Jezebel. Uh, did I say that? Okay, my lovely godly wife. I would only say that because she's here. Literally led all four of my kids against me. She thinks anointed by God. But one of my reasons I did not want that dog is because all my life growing up, you walk outdoors, six kids, we played outdoors constantly, you're constantly stepping in something. And you come inside the house and all of a sudden my mom would say, Tim, check your shoes, I'm smelling something. And I check my shoes and there it is and I got to go back outside and clean off my shoes and I'm going to get you to the second layer of that lovely cake metaphor. First means to acknowledge God saying, hey, I smell something and it's not very clean and it's not pleasing to me. Get it out of your life and go to the second layer. And the second layer means to cast or throw. Listen, when God shows you what's in your life that ought not be in your life, he says, cast it and throw it to me. I will in my mercy plunge it beneath the blood of my son and I will take it out of your soul. That's confession. First, you've got to agree with God. And once you agree with God, you throw it to his mercy. He removes it from your soul and he makes you clean. That's why confession means to come clean. It's our response when God shows us that we've sinned. And when he reveals that sin, you've got to agree with God. Don't fight with him. Don't argue with him. You're going to lose just agree with God. You've broken your shalom. You've broken your peace with him. You've violated his holy relationship. And throw that sin that he has shown you to his mercy. But friends, God never reveals your sin without the offer of his grace. He never will show you your sin without convincing you that he's merciful. And this is what shame-filled, broken, and ruined people forget. His mercy is new every day. His grace is sufficient. His love is steadfast. His vows hold true. When we confess sins of God's people, we are praying that God will pour out his mercy upon them and remember his promises to them. It's all bound up. Look in verse 5. You see that word covenant? It's all bound up in that majestic, beautifully, horribly misunderstood word covenant. God is a covenantal being. He is a covenantal God, meaning that he brings his people into covenant with him. Now, we like that, right? Every time, whenever you put your faith in Jesus Christ... The moment that you trusted him, not your works, not your church attendance, not your family pedigree, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, that he could take the sins that he has shown you and plunge them beneath the blood of Christ and restore the peace with God and give you eternal life. When you've done that, he takes you and he puts you right into his family. He seals you into his covenant. The Holy Spirit puts a seal over you, Christian brother and sister. Nobody can take you out of God's hand. You can't take yourself out of God's hand. 
He's a covenantal God. But this is what we don't like. Now everybody kind of likes what I just said. Here's what we don't like. Every Christian in this sanctuary and around this planet and who has ever, ever lived Old Testament and New, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. You are brought, Christian brother, at the moment of your salvation, right into a family where they are now your brother and sister. And now, all of a sudden, my brother's ruined life affects me. Now, my broken walls affect you. Now, I've got a covenantal responsibility to drop to my knees and stay there until the fog of confusion has burned away and I know what God wants me to do. You can't avoid that in the subject of covenant. In fact, you see it in the Old Testament. Don't you remember the battle of Jericho when those walls were about to drop? When God was going to be victorious, God did all the work. The soldiers had to go in and God said to them, don't touch a single piece of plunder. It's all mine. But one man saw all of the gold and all the clothing and all the precious things he's never had. And his life followed his eyes and he hid some of it beneath his tent. You remember his name, Achan. Here's what God says. Listen to covenant. You ready? God says, Israel has sinned. Wait a minute, God. It's one man. It's one person. It was one Israelite. His name was Achan. But God says, no, you see it with one person. I see it covenantally. It's Israel. Israel has sinned. They, note the plural, have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied. And listen, what you get when you come out of covenant theology is this, and it's frightening. My sin affects you. Don't think that your life could be in ruin and you're a part of this church and it doesn't affect anybody but your own family. It affects the entire church. That's the power of the covenant. And it's why when I see somebody in ruin, that face that came to your mind, why you're covenantally responsible, Lord, what do you want me to do about this? I will aim first and shoot later, and I will stay on my knees until you show me. That's what burns in a wall builder's heart. These are my people, Nehemiah is saying. Well, wait a minute. He's never even been to Israel. He's never been to Judah. He's never worshipped at the tabernacle. He's never, he doesn't have any royal blood, yet they were his people, and he was responsible 800 miles away. Well, Nehemiah has elevated God. He's invited God. He's confessed. We get to the fourth thing we see. Nehemiah's prayer focused on affirmation. Friends, don't forget this part of prayer. And by the way, don't get up in the morning and take out your notes and say, okay, here's my new formula of prayer. It used to be Acts. It used to be the ACTS. Now it's going to be the five things that Tim told us. Don't do that. Let your prayer live. It's fluid. It's organic. It's alive. Yet let it be suffused. Let it be permeated. Let it be filled with what you're seeing in Nehemiah's heart. He is a master leader and he's going to do a master work of rebuilding. His prayer focused on affirmation. Look what he said. Remember the word that you have commanded your servant Moses saying, listen, when's the last time you've gone to God in boldness and humility and said, God, I'm going to hold you to your word. 
You can do that without flippancy and you can do that without arrogance. And we're invited to do that. God wants you to do that. He wants you to come to him and say, God, you said you're never going to leave me or forsake me. I'm going to hold you to your word. You said you will hold up my friend with your righteous right hand. I'm going to hold you to your promise. You said you're our faithful Yahweh and our powerful Elohim. Well, I'm going to bring those words back in all humility and I'm going to hold you to your promise. Remembering, remember the word that you commanded. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you be dis- though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And then he reminds God, God, don't just remember your promises. Remember, I'm yours. I'm yours. You chose me before I ever chose you. You wrote my name in the book before I was even born. You even formed every word, every day that I would live before I was even birthed. You chose me. I am yours. Remember me, God. I'm your servant. And you've redeemed me with the power of your son's blood. You've rescued me from the enslavement of sin. Remember that. You've put me into freedom. And that freedom is to be your servant, not to do whatever I want. But remember, you selected me. You bought me out of slavery to sin. You put me into freedom in Christ. Don't leave me. Use me to do whatever you want. You know, we can do this. You can affirm God's word when you pray. You should do that. My wife is unbelievable at this. When she prays, it's like the word of God flowing through her heart. Affirm God's word when you pray. And remember, when you've made a mess of your life, remember, when you've made a mess in your life, God is a restoring God. Do you know somebody? Remember that name that came into your your mind, that face? Haven't we all made messes in our life, honestly? Come on, is there really anybody here that's not made a mess? You know, stolen waters are sweet, the Bible says. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. You know, it's all about the beginnings of an affair. Until the water turns bitter and the bread is moldy. But listen, there's people all around us who have walked down that path. We've got to restore them. We've got to be rebuilding their lives. Irresponsible spending is absolutely fun until your creditors come calling. I know people from Georgia, New York to here that are in thousands and thousands of dollars of credit card debt. Some of you might be there. It's not very fun, is it? That's a mess in your life. And God is all about rescuing. God is all about taking the repentant child of God and rebuilding, restoring. Maybe for some of us, it's you've worshipped at the idol of your career and you've lost your children. God sees this. He sees the rubble in your broken life. Affirm God's promises and do what Nehemiah did. Boldly ask God for help. And then go to the fifth and final one that we're going to see. 
Nehemiah's prayer ends with petition. Look at verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Here's what Nehemiah has done. He's elevated God. He's invited God to come and listen to him. He's confessed what God has revealed. He's affirmed. He's affirmed that God is faithful to his promises. And now, finally... He's ready to ask God to move. Now he can do what David wrote. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know what that means, right? Delight yourself in the Lord. It's the Hebrew word onag. It means to be delicate and feminine. It means to have a heart that is easily shaped and easily rejoices. Rejoice and be shaped in the Lord. And when you are, he's not going to give you your dreams. You're not a Disney. He's going to get his desires into your heart. And then once his desires are in your heart and the two of them are in accord, now he will do whatever you ask. And what what Nehemiah is about to ask, God is going to do. Did you see what happened in Nehemiah during this prayer? Four months of elevating God, burning the fog away. Listen, if you're confused in life about what God wants you to do, I can promise you, you've not been on your knees long enough. Affirm and elevate God. Invite him in his full attention. Confess what he shows you. Get your feet and your hands clean. Walk up the hill and worship. And then remember and affirm his promises to you. And the fog is gone. And now your heart is in accord with God's. And now what you ask is what God wants to give. Let me close with a story from Gordon MacDonald. Gordon MacDonald, who was a pastor who wrote a book called Rebuilding Your Broken Wall, Your Broken World. He was a pastor whose heart got led astray towards a woman. He had an affair. His church was awesome. They took him out of ministry and they put him in restoration for years. And when he had rebuilt that wall and the people around him had rebuilt his wall and he began to rebuild and restore his family life, years later they brought him back into ministry. That's how the church should work. And he wrote this book called Rebuilding Your Broken World and he says this, In one of the darkest hours of my broken world condition, I found myself one day in the front row of a Dallas church where I had been asked to give a talk. I had made a long-term commitment to be there, but had it not been for my host's hard work of preparation, I would have tried to cancel my participation. Frankly, I was in no mood to speak to anyone, but I felt constrained not to cancel. So there I was. And when the service began, a group of young men and women took places at the front of the congregation and began to lead with instruments And voices in a chain of songs and hymns, some contemporary, some centuries old. And as we moved freely from melody to melody, I became aware of a transformation in my inner world. I was strangely lifted by the music and its contents of thankfulness and celebration. 
If my heart had been heavy, the hearts of others about me were apparently light because together we seemed to rise in spirit. The music acting much like the thermal air currents that lift an eagle or a hawk high above the earth. I not only felt myself rising out of the darkness of my spirit, but I felt as if I were being bathed and washed clean and as the gloom melted away. A quiet joy and a sense of cleansing swept in and took its place. I felt free to express my turbulent emotions with tears. The congregation's praise was a therapy of the Spirit, indescribable in its power. It was a day I shall never forget. No one in that sanctuary knew how high they had lifted one troubled man far above his broken world anguish. Were there others there that day feeling as I did? Perhaps they could have affirmed as I did. God was there. Is that you? Did you feel something shift during this last 75 minutes? God lifting you out of the rubble a little higher. Restoring a little bit more hope. He knows how to rebuild your life. When you elevate him and you invite his full attention and you confess what he begins to show you and you affirm his promises, you can ask and he will delight in giving. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray for my friends that are here. Lord, I know many are struggling. Lord, I just pray for them. I pray that they would experience the rising of their spirit, the rising of their soul out of the depths of the gloom, like McDonald describes. Lord, I pray that you would rescue them, give them hope. Restore them, Father, I pray. For those of us who See the ruin in other people's lives. Lord, teach us to aim first, shoot later. Help us to get to our knees and stay there until you make it clear what we're to do. But Lord, let us do something. We're part of the family of God. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.